and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. August is a great month for medieval saints. Last week, we celebrated the feast of St. Lawrence, uh, who was not himself a medieval saint, but uh, he was the keeper of that most medieval of relics, the Holy Grail. And last Friday was the feast of St. Clair of Assisi, a great medieval saint. And this coming Sunday is the feast of the Dr. Mellifluous, the great doctor of the church and patron of a no-nonsense Catholic, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And we're going to be talking about him today. Also taking a, a closer look at something I touched on last week and uh, I think a couple times in the last month, which is the contrast between uh, Pope St. John Paul II's encyclical Veritatis Splendor and Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitia. Also later, we will continue uh, with our look at Monsignor Charles Pope's article, Eight Errors Catholics Should Know and Avoid. So lots of good stuff. But we will begin with St. Bernard, whose deepest concern was the salvation of souls. He was both a practical and a pastoral theologian, which is to say that he wasn't interested in the kind of uh, academic speculative speculative theology of the uh, like the fledgings fledgling scholastic movement that in the following century would produce the likes of St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, but also that kind of arbitrary ivory tower academic argument that you hear about, like how many angels fit on the head of a pin. You know, for St. Bernard, it was about salvation. He was the third son of a noble family of Burgundy. At a young age, he was sent to Châtillon on the Seine for a complete course of study. Even then, they say he loved to be alone. He loved solitude, that he was always recollected and obedient and made it his continual prayer that God would never allow him to stain his innocence by sin. His teachers were impressed with his intellect, and he was allowed to enter into the study of theology and of Holy, uh, Holy Scriptures at an uncommonly early age. You know, uh, back in those days, you had to stutter, uh, stutter had to study logic and arithmetic and that sort of thing before you were allowed to study theology or, or open up the Holy Scriptures. Uh, Bernard um, was 19 years old when his mother died, and at that time he became his own master. He went home because uh, his father was busy with uh, military pursuits. And so Bernard made his appearance in society at 19 years old with all of the advantages and talents which would make the world agreeable to a young nobleman in the Middle Ages. He was witty, educated, but he was also prudent and naturally modest. And this, combined with what we would call a magnetic personality, made him very popular. But of course, those very advantages also have their snares then as now. And his first danger was from false friends and the temptations of the flesh. But through the light of grace, he realized that those who tempted him were not really his friends. And so concerned about the danger to his soul, he began to think about forsaking the world and retiring to the Cistercian Abbey of Cito, whose founding abbot was the Englishman St. Stephen Harding. Now, naturally, Bernard's brothers and his friends tried to talk him out of uh, his vocation, but he pled his case so well, he was so eloquent that they all wound up joining him. And in the year, year 1113, Bernard arrived at Cito, accompanied by 30 of his fellow young noblemen, including most of his brothers. The Cistercians, um, by the way, were a, a restoration movement within the Benedictine family, and they desired to live according to the stricter discipline of the original rule of St. Benedict, which, you know, is not an uncommon occurrence amongst religious orders of both men and women, that as numbers grow and wealth increases and influence, that they lose their first fervor. And then the rule is relaxed, and then community life becomes more and more lax or worldly until somebody comes along to start a new order that is really just a restoration of the primitive rule. You know, think Teresa of Avila and the Discalced Carmelites, for example. Anyway, in my humble opinion, that's something that the hierarchy of the church today 
needs to seriously contemplate. Uh, Eric Sammons recently posted an article on the Crisis Magazine website titled, The Church Must Demand More, Not Less, from Her Members. You know, he pointed out that religious bodies across the board, that's Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, you name it, are losing members in record numbers. But he says there are a few exceptions, and at the top of the list are the Amish. Fully 90%, he says, of those who grow up Amish remain Amish. Any Catholic bishop worth his salt would give his mitre for retention rates even close to that. And then he said that what's amazing about the Amish's ability to keep their members is that their religion is one of the most demanding in the world today. And this contradicts the, the current conventional wisdom that says religions have to meet people where they're at and not demand very much from their members because doing so will only drive people away. But the truth is, and I, and I think this is verifiable just by observation, the truth is there's never been such a large-scale exodus uh, from the church and the practice of the faith in Catholic history than has occurred since the church modernized in the 1960s and 70s. Never before, not even during the Protestant Reformation, has the church lost members like she has since Vatican II and the introduction of the new mass and the relaxed rules for fasting and abstinence, etc. Now, I'm sure Paul VI thought that these things were going to make Catholicism more attractive, uh, especially to the never-to-be-clearly-defined creature known as modern man. But the fact is, when traditional Catholic liturgical and penitential practices were abandoned, modern man just assumed they must have never been that important to begin with. And ever since, he has, as they say, stayed away in droves. The fact that the only sector of the church that is growing instead of shrinking is traditionalism might give the hierarchy a clue that it may be time to abandon the kind of initiatives that caused the crisis in the first place. Perhaps it's time to admit that the long-awaited new springtime never came and to roll up their sleeves and get started on the serious work of what Benedict XVI called the reform of the reform. But I digress. Unlike modern man, uh, St. Bernard and his companions were eager to embrace the challenging life of the Cistercian rule. When Bernard entered the novitiate, his only desire was to be forgotten by the world, to live a hidden life where he could be occupied only with God. To keep this before him always, he asked himself every day, Bernard, Bernard, why have you come here? Now, they say that after his year's novitiate, he didn't know whether the top of his cell was covered with a ceiling or whether the church had more than one window. And that's because he spent so much time with his head bowed in prayer. He was professed at the age of 23, and just a year later, St. Stephen selected him to found a new community. So Bernard and 12 companions went to a desert place in Champagne that the locals called the Valley of Wormwood. But when they were done clearing and building, it was renamed Clairvaux, the Bright Valley, and Bernard was immediately elected abbot. The poor and the weak sought his protection. His writings made him famous, and bishops, kings, and popes asked his advice. When one of his spiritual sons, Bernard of Pisa, was unexpectedly elected pope, taking the name uh, Eugenius III, Bernard was so concerned for his soul that he wrote him a series of letters. Uh, letters that were subsequently published in a single volume known as De Consideratione, the Considerations. It's essentially advice on how to be Pope without losing your soul. And, and speaking of the papacy, in the year 1130, Bernard was called to judge between two rival claimants to the chair of Peter. And then later he exerted that, that same zeal in maintaining the purity of the faith as he had its unity by causing the her heretical, um, heterodox theological writings of Peter Abelard and Gilbert of Poitiers to be condemned. You know, but it's more than that. You know, modern scholars agree that Bernard's main concern was the salvation of souls, especially the simple. And this should not be wondered at. I mean, he was merely following our Lord's admonition that the kingdom of heaven is made up of such as these. You know, uh, one modern scholar I, I read recently uh, has written that Bernard must have had a violent temper. 
And this is based on, on the passionate rhetoric that he employed against the teachings of, of Peter Abelard and Gilbert of Poitiers. But I think that a closer examination reveals that his zeal was every bit as much for the salvation of their souls as for those who may have been misled by their errors. You know, again, consider our Lord's words from Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And it was his sincerity in his concern for their souls, uh, I think, as much as his learned arguments, that succeeded in convincing them both to retract their errors. Now, of course, there's much more to, to St. Bernard's life, uh, the preaching of the Second Crusade, uh, writing the rule for the Knights Templars and kind of single-handedly inventing the institution of Christian chivalry in the process, not to mention all his mer many Marian hymns and prayers, including the Memorare and devotion to the holy face of Jesus and, and his many sublime writings, including On Loving God and The Steps of Humility. He had an impact on uh, practical theology that's still being felt today, even if many Catholics don't realize that he's the source. You know, he had an education in theology and Holy Scripture. But there was something else that really shaped and motivated Bernard's theology. And we'll talk about that and lots more when we come back with, with uh, more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And I mentioned before the break that he had uh, an education in theology and in Holy Scripture. But from the time he entered the cloister, he said that uh, regarding his profound biblical insights, quote, my only masters, that is teachers, have been the beeches and the oaks. Because his masterful spiritual exegesis, which earned him the title, the last of the fathers, was, was entirely the fruit of solitude and contemplation. Two things of which most Catholics, even clergy, have far too little of today. Uh, and, you know, in preparation for the feast, which is coming up Sunday, I've been rereading Bernard's famous series of sermons on the Song of Songs. Uh, and I'll share a little bit of that uh, later on. But I've also been looking at some scholarly articles and in a peer review of a book on St. Bernard that was part of a series on great medieval thinkers from uh, Oxford University Press, uh, a peer review used the word perspicuous, not less than four times regarding St. Bernard and his teaching. Perspicuous, that means unambiguous or clearly expressed, easily understood, and even his most profound writings are not difficult to grasp. And the reason is that in all his works, in all his travels, in all his dealings with the great and powerful, he never allowed himself to forget that his main duty in this world was to lead a holy life and save his soul. You know, the perspicuity of Bernard's writings uh, even his deepest and most contemplative works, uh, you know, which are nevertheless approachable and understandable, it comes from the fact that his purpose in writing was not to show how brilliant he was, you know, which was obvious anyhow, but on the contrary, to help his readers to save their souls. It's like what St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, to do so is right and acceptable to God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved, and to come to full knowledge of the truth. Everyone, without exception. But the Song of Songs is, is a stunning work of allegory in which the love of a bride for her bridegroom, and vice versa, prophetically represents the love of the soul for Christ, and how that love is reciprocated. And so following St. Paul's manner of preaching, this, this is not the milk that he would deliver to the people in the world but solid food that Bernard offered to his brothers who he believed were ready to accept it. They were ready for it. 
And so in his introduction to the sermons on the Song of Songs, Bernard speaks of Solomon's other two books, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. He calls them loaves of bread that have laid for, for his brothers the groundwork for understanding the Song of Songs. Here's what he said. Since there are two evils that comprise the main enemies of the soul, a misguided love of the world and an excessive love of self, the two books previously mentioned can provide an antidote to each of these infections. The one, Proverbs, uproots pernicious habits of mind and body with the hoe of self-control. The other, that is Ecclesiastes, by the use of enlightened reason, quickly perceives a delusive tinge in all that the world holds glorious, truly distinguishing between it and deeper truth. Moreover, it causes the fear of God and the observance of his commandments to be preferred to all human pursuits and worldly desires, and rightly so. The former is the beginning of wisdom, the latter its culmination. For there is no true and consummate wisdom other than the avoidance of evil and the doing of good. And no one can successfully shun evil without the fear of God, and no work is good without the observance of the commandments. Taking it, then, that these two evils have been warded off by the reading of choice books, we may suitably proceed with this holy and contemplative discourse, which, as the fruit of the other two, may be delivered only to well-prepared ears and minds. <laughs> and that's just the introduction. You know, reading the spiritual commentary of St. Bernard that follows, it's just a delight. You know, I've been reading so many modern documents lately, and we're going to compare and contrast two of them in a bit. But so many church documents are so dry. They're so needlessly complex and overly verbose that in comparison, reading St. Bernard is like a drink of cool water to a man dying of thirst. Seriously, that's no nonsense. Uh, okay, because August 20th falls on a Sunday this year, the Feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux is superseded by the 12th Sunday after Pentecost in the extraordinary form. And so the gospel for this upcoming Sunday is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But uh, since you will not be hearing the gospel for the Feast of St. Bernard this year, even if you assist at the traditional Latin Mass, I'd like to share it with you now. It is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 5, 13 through 19 salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the fulfillment of the law. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'll take a little sip here. Ah. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, what can be done to make it salty once again? It is no longer good for anything, and thus it is cast out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a mountain cannot be hidden, nor would someone light a lamp and then put it under a basket. Rather, it is placed upon a lampstand so that it may afford light to all in the house. In the same way, your light must shine so that it can be seen by others. This will enable them to observe your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill them. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single letter, not even a tiny portion of a letter, will disappear from the law until all things have been accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks even one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever observes these commandments and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. And you can see how that relates to St. Bernard of Clairvaux and his zeal for souls. Now in the Gospel, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But as he alludes, if a seasoning has no flavor, it has no value. So likewise, Catholics that make no effort to, to affect the world around them, what good are they? Well, they're certainly of little value to the kingdom of God. Uh, if you and I are too much like the world, then what good are we? Catholics should not blend in with everybody else. Rather, we should affect others positively, just as seasoning brings out the best flavor in food. 
And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city built upon a mountain cannot be hidden. So can you hide a city sitting on top of a mountain? No, you can see it from every direction. Even at night, the lights of the city could be seen for miles. So if we live for Christ, we shine like lights, showing others what Christ is like by our good example. Our Lord said that no one would light a lamp and then put it under a basket. In other words, we should not hide our light. And how do we do that? How do we hide our light? I mean, really in many ways. We hide our light by being silent when we should speak, by going along with the crowd, especially going along with the crowd by denying the light or, or allowing sin to dim our light or, God forbid, put it out altogether. We hide the light by not explaining our light to others or by ignoring the needs of others. You can think of these last two points as the spiritual as well as the corporal works of mercy. And if we are the light of the world, it's only because we continue to shine the light of Christ in this present darkness. You know, in the Middle Ages, uh, all the various guilds, the uh, tradesmen, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, they all had their own patron saint. And the traditional English translation of the Bible renders uh, this one verse, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but upon a candlestick, that it may shine to all that are in the house. And so since St. Bernard was such a shining example of letting his light shine, and since this is the gospel for his feast, candle makers took him as their patron saint. Anyway, the, the church gives us this gospel for the feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux to encourage us to imitate him. Bernard wanted only to live the hidden life of the cloister where he could be occupied only with God, but it was not to be. Souls needed to be saved, and they still do. So like St. Bernard, you are also called to be a beacon of truth, not to shut off your light from the rest of the world. Now in the next verses, uh, Jesus talks about the fulfillment of the law. Through Moses, God gave his people the moral law in, in the form of the Ten Commandments and the liturgical and ceremonial laws, all to help them to love him with all their hearts, minds, and souls. But as I'm sure you know, the chosen people broke the first commandment while Moses was still on Sinai getting God's instructions for the tabernacle. And so Moses broke the tablets of the law and, and called out, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And it was his kin, the Levites, that answered the call. And then after it was all over, Moses went back up the mountain to beg God to take Israel back into the covenant. And he did. But things were not the same. God renewed the covenant, but it included the many laws that we read about in the book of Leviticus. You know, uh, Christians have, have traditionally viewed the laws added after the golden calf incident as being penitential in nature, like, like in confession, when the priest gives you absolution, but then he gives you a penance to perform. You know, th that's not a bad thing. You need to do it to, to, to pay the temporal debt due for your sins. And the Levitical laws and the later Deuteronomic laws were like that. That's why St. Paul says in Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 19, for the hardness of your hearts. In any case, throughout Israel's history, those laws had often been misunderstood and misquoted and, and misapplied until by Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees had turned the Mosaic law into a, into a perfunctory and confusing mass of hundreds of rules and regulations. So when Jesus talked about a new way to understand God's law, he was actually trying to bring people back to its original purpose. Right? From the beginning, it was not so, he says. But he wasn't a reformer, much less a revolutionary. His purpose was rather to restore and to fulfill Jesus didn't speak against the law itself, but against the abuses and the excesses to which it had been subjected. This is something I think it's well to remember in our own day, that the first words of Jesus' public ministry were repent and believe in the gospel. To repent means to turn back, that is to turn back to God. What Jesus was trying to tell his followers in the first century is still true in the 21st. The whole of Christianity is a restoration project to restore the relationship with God the Father lost by our first parents in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus is the way. 
And when we come back, we're going to take a page from Bernard's book and talk for one minute about salvation. Okay, that and lots more. Uh, Veritatis Splendor versus Amoris Letitia. Errors for Catholic. Right after this. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I was talking about <clears throat> how St. Bernard's preaching and his theology was so very powerful because of his genuine concern for the salvation of souls, that this was his, uh, you know, the motivating force behind everything he did. And I wanted to take a moment and talk about salvation, that according to the church, salvation is a gift. It's freely offered by God who desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus himself said in Mark 16, 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So first off, we know that there's something we need to be saved from, namely, uh, you know, sin and eternal death, and that we must be baptized. But what does it mean to believe? St. Paul says without faith, it's impossible to please God, but faith alone isn't sufficient. In Galatians, he said, it must be faith working through love. And therefore, St. James says, we're, we're saved by works and not by faith alone. Works, for example, the Lord Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Which, you know, uh, associates receiving Holy Communion with salvation. Uh, talking about the end of the world, he, he says, you know, uh, you you uh, you didn't feed me or clothe me or when I was hung or when I was naked or you know uh, give me drink when I was thirsty. When he says when you when you failed to do it to the least of my brethren, and he made so he's making a, a salvation contingent on on also on works of mercy. Examples can be multiplied. I think the point is that our Lord Jesus taught us to call God our Father. And according to the Catechism, paragraph 169, salvation comes from God alone. But we receive the life of faith through the church. Because we receive the life of faith through the church, she is our mother. We believe the church as the mother of our new birth, but not in the church as though she were the author of our salvation. Bottom line, according to the Holy Bible and the Catechism, we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but only if we also cooperate with that grace by living a life of holiness and obedience to God's commandments. <clears throat> that may not be popular, but that's the truth, and that's no nonsense. All right, um, ever since... Pope Francis announced that Cardinal-elect Tuco Fernandez will be the new prefect of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. It has reignited the debate over Chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia, of which he is the acknowledged author. Well, I've already brought up the fact that the official understanding of Amoris Laetitia, Chapter 8, which was entered by Pope Francis himself into the official Acts of the Holy See, uh, is in conflict with the teaching of Veritatis Splendor, which was Pope John Paul II's encyclical on moral theology. I think we spoke about this just last week. And a number of people have, have uh, subsequently commented on this, something one thing, something another. Uh, one zealous papal apologist said simply that whatever the current pope teaches trumps anything or everything taught by his predecessors. But that simply can't be true. No one doubts that Pope Francis is teaching that it is possible for divorced and remarried Catholics to receive Holy Communion without benefit of annulment is part of his authentic magisterium. But this teaching is a novelty. It's not a part of the deposit of faith, and therefore it is not infallible. John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor, on the other hand, is an exercise of the ordinary magisterium, which is infallible. As John Paul II wasn't introducing some new teaching unheard of in the tradition of the Church, 
but rather restating teachings that do form a part of the deposit of faith. Now, the Pope's authentic magisterium must be received with religious submission, but not as de fide. In other words, not as if it were necessary for salvation. I'll give you an example. In 1930, Pope Pius XI uh, issued a decree on modesty. Among the teachings therein was this, quote, women and girls who wear immodest clothes are to be prohibited from Holy Communion and from the office of sponsor in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. And in certain cases, they are to be prohibited even from entry into the church. Wow. Well, what constitutes immodest clothes for a woman? Well, pants, open-toed shoes, dresses with sleeves that do not cover the elbow or that only just cover the knees. See, according to these guidelines, even the dresses that were worn by Barbara Billingsley on Leave it to Beaver wouldn't be modest enough for assisting at Holy Mass or, or acting as godmother in the sacraments of initiation. Yet such was the authentic magisterium, the, the, the manifest will of Pius XI. But it was not a part of the deposit of faith. And while modesty remains important, uh, uh, the standards of modesty are not what they were 93 years ago. However, that same year, 1930, he also promulgated Casti Canubi in response to the Lambeth Conference of the Anglican Communion. And that document defined Christian marriage as between one man and one woman, stressed the sanctity of the sacrament of matrimony, reaffirmed the prohibition on artificial birth control and abortion. And when those things came under attack after Vatican II, you know, not, not among the Anglicans now, but amongst the Catholics, Pope Paul VI, who was immeasurably more liberal than Pius XI, upheld all of those teachings in Humana Vitae, precisely because Casti Canubi was an exercise of the ordinary magisterium. So you see the difference. That's why Humana Vitae will continue to stand, because it also is an exercise of the ordinary magisterium. Now, on the 7th of this month, which was the 30th anniversary of Veritatis Splendor, Richard A. Spinello uh, posted an article on the Crisis Magazine website called simply Veritatis Splendor versus Amoris Laetitia. His point being that today, uh, many at even the highest levels of the church ignore or even reject the teachings of Veritatis Splendor. He says that John Paul II's encyclical on moral theology has, quote, certainly lost none of its intellectual force or deep wisdom, and it remains as pertinent today as ever. And as I have argued, primarily because it was an exercise of the ordinary magisterium and will therefore always remain pertinent. It will be perpetually pertinent because it reflects the, the deposit of faith. Spinello goes on to say, though, that when this papal teaching first appeared, it was greeted with a torrent of hostility by many of the church's moral theologians. And he mentions specifically how Bernhard Herring, uh, apparently Pope Francis's favorite moral theologian, described himself as greatly discouraged after reading Veritatis Splendor. And Spinello says this is not a surprise, since Paul, uh, John Paul II was correcting the errors that Herring himself and the other revisionist theologians uh, had been propagating in the church since the end of Vatican II. Which, as John Paul II pointed out, was not a matter of isolated or limited dissent, but, quote, a systematic calling into question of traditional moral doctrine. The heterodox, heterodox doctrines of uh, the fundamental option and proportionalism, the sovereignty of conscience, moral subjectivism, all of these were thoroughly refuted in Veritatis Splendor through, quote, arguments woven with principled reasoning, unquote. See, John Paul II was both a theologian and a philosopher, and for a time, it seemed like he succeeded in renewing moral theology after the crisis uh, precipitated by Vatican II. But then, says Spinello, came the papacy of Pope Francis, which has consistently sought to marginalize and undermine the principal moral teachings of this encyclical. Now, that's a bold statement. But he backs it up by pointing out, for example, that under Pope Francis, Veritatis Splendor is virtually ignored, ironically, by the new faculty 
uh, at the John Paul II Pontifical Theological Institute for Marriage and the Family Sciences. Instead, this new faculty hired by uh, a Francis appointee, Archbishop Paglia, are, quote, keen to emphasize how the moral law must be constantly modified and updated in response to cultural evolution and historical experience. Last year, just a little more than a year ago, June of 2022, Francis's fellow Jesuit, uh, Father Julio Martinez, gave the keynote address at a conference titled Moral Theology and Amoris Laetitia. Now, he's a professor of moral theology at a pontifical university in Madrid. And Father Martinez points out, he says, that, that in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis, quote-unquote, corrects John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor. Because, he says, quote, Amoris Laetitia demands a changed epistemology. And here the question of discernment arises, a very important word in the Ignatian tradition. Okay, epistemology, by the way, is the theory of knowledge, especially with regard to its methods and its validity. So epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes a justified belief from a mere opinion. Now, now, Father Martinez says to put the focus on discernment in order to find the good is a really new thing in moral theology. As my silver-haired old mother used to say, he ain't wrong. You know, clearly deciding for yourself what is good and evil, now, well, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, but it's never been part of Catholic moral theology. But this is precisely Father Martinez's claim that Pope Francis has brought, quote-unquote, discernment a central tenet of Ignatian spirituality, quote, to the practice of moral theology. But he says that Pope Francis's understanding of moral theology, as uh, represented in his encyclicals Evangelii Gaudium and Veritatis Gaudium, is not just informed by Jesuit spirituality, <clears throat> but is also firmly rooted in the developments of, you know, drumroll please, the Second Vatican Council, especially Gaudium et Spes which is the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, which ironically, uh, John Paul II was a main contributor. You know, Father Martinez claims that it's Pope Francis who's really following Vatican II, and that we need to recover this approach without getting lost in the meanders of Veritatis Splendor. When we come back, we'll talk about what he meant by that and lots more. But we continue with No Nonsense Catholic here on Virtual Power Radio. I was talking about the irony of uh, the followers of Pope Francis um, <clears throat> dismissing Veritatis Splendor in the name of following Francis's vision of, of Gaudium et Spes when uh, John Paul II was one of the main contributors to Gaudium et Spes and, and specifically uh, uh, said that his pontificate was an ongoing implementation precisely of Gaudium et Spes. But uh, Father Martinez, the Jesuit uh, uh, moral theologian, says that it's Francis who's really following Vatican II. And that, quote, we need to recover this approach without getting lost in the meanders of Veritatis Splendor. In other words, Francis's new epistemology of discernment means that the individual Catholic must chart his own moral course via a personal discernment that's not hampered by those pesky fundamental truths of Catholic doctrine. And once again, as I've been talking about for weeks now, we see the contradictions between interpreting Vatican II with a hermeneutic of continuity, like John Paul II and Benedict XVI, versus the hermeneutic of rupture being employed by Francis and his cohorts. Now, going back to St. Bernard for a moment, this, this new epistemology in, in, of discernment in matters of morality is precisely the kind of unprecedented theological novelty that he abhorred in Peter Abelard and Gilbert of Poitiers. The difference being that confronted with, with Bernard's practical and truly uh, pastoral theology, which understands that obedience to Christ is the way of salvation and not one's personal discernment, Abelard and Gilbert retracted their errors. 
would that today's modernist theologians would have the humility and the requisite concern for the salvation of souls, beginning with their own, to do the same when confronted with the fundamental truths contained in Veritatis Splendor. But instead, Cardinal-elect Fernandez, the new prefect of the Dicastery of the Doctrine of the Faith, has defended his dismissive view of Veritatis Splendor on the grounds that its particular concern was, quote, to set certain limits, unquote. Hence, according to Fernandez, Quote, it is not the most adequate text to encourage the development of theology. Okay, <laughs> once again, he ain't wrong, but he misses the point. Yes, Veritatis Splendor was not primarily concerned with encouraging the development of theology, but with correcting errors that were endangering the salvation of souls. In other words, St. John Paul II, uh, like St. Bernard of Clairvaux before him, was defending the deposit of faith, which, by the way, is the primary duty of the papacy. Not to mention the primary duty of the prefect of the, the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And that's no nonsense. All right. Oh, sorry, my dog is upset. There's someone at the door. Uh, kind of takes you right out of the... <laughs> takes you right out of the moment, doesn't it? Uh, a few weeks ago... I talked about the heresy of universalism, you know, which is this this notion that that everybody's going to heaven without regard to their religious beliefs or their moral behavior, and and then uh, I discovered that Monsignor Charles Pope had written an article for National Catholic Register called Eight Errors That Catholics Should Know and Avoid," which lists universalism and seven more common errors altogether in one place, and uh, he says that although the errors are common in the world. I present them here as especially problematic because we all too often find them in the church as well. They are sadly and commonly expressed by Catholics and represent a kind of infection that is set in which reflects worldly and secular thinking, not godly and spiritual thinking. So I guess, uh, according to St. Bernard, they haven't spent enough time with the books of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Anyway, last week we covered the era of preaching mercy without reference to repentance, and also staurophobia. Staurophobia, which means fear of the cross. And within the church, he says, emerges from the reticence of Catholics to, to even discuss, frankly, the demands of discipleship. Right? Fear of the cross. Those are real problems both. And, and today I'd like to continue with uh, the next error on the list, which is the deformation of dialogue. Now, um, you know, we hear a lot about dialogue these days, and dialogue isn't bad, you know, per se. But Monsignor says it can substitute mere action for a true goal. You see, the term dialogue has come to mean endless conversation. And as such, it lacks a clear goal, which, which goal is to convince the other person of your position, which Pope Francis has condemned. He condemns it as proselytism, trying to convince people of the truth of the faith. So dialogue, then, is just talk. And as Monsignor Pope points out, in our culture, merely talking is given a lot of credit. You know, but properly understood, uh, uh, the original meaning of dialogue is getting a conclusion across by the exchange of words, words that represent thoughts and reasons. Hence, in the New Testament of the Holy Bible, the word dialogue is not only a far more vigorous term than it is today, but it's typically used precisely in the context of giving testimony and of trying to convince others of the gospel. For example, uh, Acts 17, verse 2, which is variously translated as, uh, Paul entered the synagogue, as was his custom, and for three Sabbath days he engaged in discussion with them from the scriptures. Or, it might say, in friendly debate, or he reasoned with them, or he argued with them. All, all of these are attempts to draw out the, the original meaning of dialogue. Or uh, consider Acts 18:4. And he reasoned and debated in the synagogue every Sabbath, trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. You see, there's that word again, persuade. You see, the problem today is that dialogue is presented as recognizing that all sides have a valid stance. And, and that what matters is understanding the position of the other. The point is, I, and I, I just had this conversation recently, I can understand your position perfectly 
and not agree with it. And it's like Monsignor Pope says, look, understanding may have value, but mostly is of value to lay a foundation for conversion to the truth. That is the truth of the gospel. The problem, he thinks, is that mere conversation itself is actually the goal. Uh, when, when Catholics speak about dialogue with the world or with unbelievers, but dialogue is not a goal. It, it, it's a means. It's an instrument, certainly, a method, but it's not a destination. And so Monsignor concludes that that that, that a, a method, dialogue, in its original Christian meaning, is a vigorous, dynamic, and joyful presentation of the gospel in order to persuade, not just endless conversation. I believe that St. Bernard of Clairvaux would agree that, that it's more important to win souls than to win arguments. But concern for the salvation of souls is precisely what's lacking in the modern promotion of dialogue and understanding as ends in themselves. Uh, next up is equating love with kindness. Kindness, according to Monsignor Pope, is an aspect of love, but so is rebuke and I would say punishment and praise. Yet today, many, he says, even in the church, think of love only as kindness, affirmation, approval, encouragement, other positive attributes. But true love, he says, uh, you know, that is the theological virtue of love that is to will the good of the other. Well, that may uh, require admonishing the sinner, rebuking his error, insisting that he must have a conversion of life, uh, and, and put spiritual treasure above earthly pleasure, or risk the loss of his soul, that it is precisely his soul that is in the balance. To ignore this is not love or mercy. And yet, Monsignor says, the modern age, equating love with mere kindness, says, if you really love me, you will affirm, even celebrate what I do. In this sort of climate, he says, when church teaching does not conform with modern notions of sexuality, for example, the church is accused of hate. Why? Simply because we do not affirm what other people demand we affirm. And he says that identity politics, right, where people hinge their whole identity and their human dignity on some narrow range of, of behaviors or attributes, typically sexual, intensifies their perception of being personally insulted by the truth. Monsignor goes on, he says, but instead of standing our ground and insisting that setting love and truth in opposition is a false dichotomy, most Catholics cave. And many also come to believe that love can be reduced to mere kindness. How? By taking up the view of the world, that the church is unkind, and therefore mean, and even hateful. Never mind that Jesus said things that were by this standard certainly unkind, and that he often spoke frankly about sin. And sin, as Monsignor points out, Jesus talked about more than mere social justice and pharisaical attitudes when he talked about sin, but he forcefully condemned such things as sexual sin and adultery and divorce and unbelief and so on. But according to Monsignor, we're apparently supposed to forget all that, because God is love, and love is kindness, and kindness is always pleasant and affirming. And this leads already dissenting theologians and other Catholics to conclude that the church is wrong, that their Jesus couldn't really have said many of the things that the Bible attributes to him. This, this is a dangerous heresy that sacrifices truth in the name of a false conception of love as unconditional affirmation. But how did we arrive at this place where Catholics care more about the, what the world thinks than they do about the truth. Well, uh, uh, another Catholic man named Pope, uh, the 18th century English Catholic poet, Alexander Pope, explained it well, I think, when he said, vice is a monster of such frightful mean that is appearance, such frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. In other words, we misconstrue the meaning of true love because we deeply misconstrue the nature of tolerance. We'll talk that, about that next week. And also, uh, um, his final 
well, his final two heresies or errors, anthropocentrism, right, man-centeredness, and another, role reversal, which I will leave the explanation of that to him uh, and for next week. In the meantime, I want to say thank you very much for listening. If you just tuned in, I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It's great to have you along with us. I encourage you to visit vmpr.org, our website, to see all the things that uh, the various speakers here at uh, Virgin Most Powerful and our apostolate is getting up to, upcoming events and so forth, and to uh, encourage you also to pray for us because we really appreciate your spiritual support, but also if you appreciate these programs to uh, give us your financial support in, in the, the manner of either a one-time donation or perhaps becoming a monthly donor because we do appreciate on, right, we, uh, um, we uh, depend upon your support to stay afloat. Until then, thanks for listening and may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.